out there and bust them crackings. I almost feel sorry for them serpents we've been tracking. Hi there, and welcome to the Kraken Busters, a walk through the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode 7, the Second Battle of Pearl Harbor, 1947, part 1. I'm Keith Billy. I wanted to kick things off by issuing a clarification and then responding to a listener question. First, the clarification. In last week's episode on Operation Typhoon, I kept using Noumea as the reference place name for typhoon operations. And that's accurate, but I, uh, in doing so, I should have pointed out that Noumea is a city on the island of New Caledonia, which in turn is in the Southwest Pacific. Um, if you're looking at a map or a globe, it's, you know, it's not next to Australia, but it's in the Australian neighborhood. Um, sorry if I made that unclear by making it sound like that was an island. Uh, listening back, I realized that's really what kind of comes across there. And uh, it is not. It is a city on an island. Big difference. Um, and then, then there's a listener question. Chris in Charlottesville asks, So what's the deal with the theme music of the show? I recognize the song, but not this version. What's going on? Good question, Chris, and I will uh, try to reply in a way that keeps the lawyers happy. Of course, when I first conceived of this show, I wanted to use the Woody Guthrie song, The Kraken Busters, as theme music. I mean, it's where I got the title, and it is just so, so strongly associated with the era. But it turns out that the legal rights situation around Guthrie's recording of it is really complicated, and working out the clearance just wasn't a possibility for a shoestring operation like mine. But it's just the recording that's tied up. The song itself is, uh, is in the public domain. So I put up a post on Craigslist and recruited a local Minneapolis folk musician, Aaron Scheel, to record as much of a sound alike as he could. And uh, I, I think he totally knocked it out of the park. Thanks very much, Aaron. Um, so that's what I'm using as theme music, and that's why it probably sounds both familiar and kind of wrong. So, okay, let's, uh, let's bounce over towards content. Last week's monster episode, and hey, did you catch what I did there? Covered the Washington Conference, where President Truman assembled the leadership of the Navy and the Pacific Fleet to come up with a plan to force a decisive engagement with the sea creatures. And then Admiral William Halsey tried to execute the plan, called Operation Typhoon, and stumbled into an absolute debacle. This week, Halsey and the Third Fleet may have thought that they were heading back to safety at Pearl Harbor, but they had neglected to run that idea by the sea creatures. And uh, warning, this week is an intense one. Actually, the next two are intense ones. If you have small children, you maybe want to make sure that your kids aren't hanging out in the same room as you listen. But this is uh, Second Pearl Harbor is a pivotal event in the conflict and even in American history, and I've got to do it right. And uh, on that same line, second warning here, I assume you caught the part one in the episode title. Second Pearl Harbor is just too big for one episode, so I'm splitting the action. Um, this episode will end on a cliffhanger. I'm going to try to get 
part two out a little quicker than usual, um, you know, so that you don't have to wait. Although, you know, I mean, it, if you know your history, you know what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> and I can also say that after next, after the next episode, after Second Pearl Harbor Part Two, um, you know, the we will be through the insane events of February 1947, and uh, you know, things will chill out a little. Anyway, here we go. Operation Typhoon had been a crushing failure. The memoirs of Rear Admiral Robert Kearney, Admiral William Halsey's longtime operations officer, record an emotionally depleted Halsey haunting the flag quarters of the battleship Missouri, alternating between despair over the loss of the New Jersey, the Yorktown, and the Augusta, and the incapacitation of several other major ships, including the Iowa and California, which were underway only through heroic effort by these ship's engineers, alternating between all of that and incoherent rage at what he repeatedly called, quote, the utter godforsaken infantile uselessness, end quote, of Third Fleet's battleships against the sea creatures. Carney claims in his memoirs to have spent the voyage alternating between personally managing Halsey's emotions and doing the work to keep the fleet in good order during its tense withdrawal. Halsey and Kearney had been longtime friends, working together tightly through the war in the Pacific, but several sources make it clear that the two never spoke again after Noumea. Nearly a quarter of the fleet, including all remaining battleships and several fleet carriers, were limping along with severe damage much of it self-inflicted from collisions and confused fire during the encounter. Kearney maintained nearly constant contact with Pearl Harbor, forwarding damage reports and requesting repair facilities. This communication also served to reassure SyncPak that the fleet had not been ambushed on the way back. Nerves about ships just up and disappearing were running very high these days. Kearney's requests started to come into Pearl Harbor in the immediate aftermath of the battle in the evening of February 12th and continued to stream in all day during the 13th. Desperate to maintain fleet strength, Pearl Harbor Base Commander Admiral Charles Stewart was almost entirely absorbed by the process of preparing the Pearl Harbor port facilities to receive the stricken ships. The standard defensive posture was nominally kept, of course, but as February 13 wore on, personnel and attention were increasingly devoted to preparing for a massive crash repair effort. The thinking, though largely unspoken, was clear enough. Most of the major known sea creatures had been engaged off of Noumea, and though they'd had the best of the encounter, they had suffered extensive damage themselves. There appeared to be no sign of them since Halsey's disengagement. The slow but steady, unimpeded progress of Third Fleet as it retreated towards Hawaii seemed like proof that the creatures, while triumphant, were safely far away. Stewart went so far as to say this more or less in so many words in one of his few post-conflict interviews. Quote, My biggest regret, he told the Associated Press's Julian Smith in a 1954 interview, quote, That's easy. I let the forces at Pearl take their eye off the ball. We were so worried about those damaged ships that we let it crowd everything else out of our heads. We were so sure that Halsey had pinned them down off New Caledonia that nobody ever thought to point out that he hadn't actually engaged all of them. In fleet operations, we had a big threat board 
a cork bulletin board where we pinned markers of all the known primary and secondary class sea creatures, noting their whereabouts and our best intelligence on their condition. The story was right there in front of us, if any of us bothered to look up at it. But we were all, all of us, and I very much include myself in this, way too worried about the boilers on the Iowa and whether or not we had enough patch steel laid up by the dry dock facilities." End quote. Stewart received nearly constant urging from Sinkpack Raymond Spruance, now headquartered in San Diego but in constant contact by undersea cable, to maintain high alert. Stewart's staff acknowledged each missive and pivoted back into preparing the base's yard facilities. This overwhelming focus continued into the morning of Friday, February 14th. The first task of the morning was to move a pair of heavy cruisers damaged by Blackjack Crack in an earlier convoy action and now repaired to the point of being able to move around the harbor but nowhere near combat ready out of the dry docks to make room for the higher value cripples making their way in. These two ships, the cruisers Astoria and Springfield, were gingerly making their way across the channel towards Ford Island with the assistance of several tugs at 8.22 a.m. Now, for all of Admiral Stewart's self-laceration about his focus on repair, picket ships and the standard umbrella of air patrols remained on duty. The destroyer minesweeper USS Moulton, on station five miles southeast of the entrance to Pearl Harbor, first raised an alarm at 8.17 when lookouts spotted roiling on the surface. By this point in the conflict, sailors had learned one lesson above all. Strange turbulence on the surface of the ocean meant that trouble was heading your way fast. Moulton's captain, fearing the obsolescent ship's capacity to handle an engagement with even a lesser sea creature, radioed the report but neglected to close and verify. Base operations staff disseminated the report but without including any further orders to raise alert levels. A second report came about 10 minutes later at 8.25 when Lieutenant Commander Eddie Wirtz, flying combat air patrol over Pearl, noticed similar roiling on the surface two miles out from the harbor mouth on a bearing straight in from the Molten sighting. Radioing in a preliminary contact, Wirtz circled around and dived his Hellcat fighter towards the water for a closer look. Eddie Wirtz was a 15-year Navy veteran, an academy man who'd served in several major engagements of the war in the Pacific. He closed the war with four confirmed Japanese kills and an extremely solid war record. Although far from a hotshot, Eddie Wirtz was a solid professional naval aviator, certainly no stranger to danger or surprise. But on February 14, 1947, Wirtz's alarmed radio call displays his mounting and entirely justified panic at what he saw from 500 feet. The transcript shows him starting out with cool professionalism, noting surface royal from an, quote, undetermined but very large, unquote, number of secondary and lower class creatures two miles out from the harbor entrance, bearing straight towards at high speed. Wirtz's professional facade breaks abruptly, though, as he continues his report. And as always, I apologize here for the profanity, but uh, Wirtz was pretty upset. Quote, I think I count at least 25, that's two five Kraken-type creatures, at least a dozen serpents, and holy mother of God, there's something huge underneath them. 
I can just barely make it out, but it looks like the biggest goddamn hunk of seaweed down there, and it's moving. Holy shit, I've got the, uh, I've got fibrous uh, aquatic, fuck it, the kelp man inbound to Pearl Harbor, and he's moving fast. Say again, kelp man inbound, and he's coming in really fucking fast, commencing strafing, end quote. Wirtz proceeded to open up with his Hellcat's 50 caliber machine guns and make several passes, but the creatures near the surface were unaffected. Wirtz's report was transmitted on a frequency easily monitored by anyone with standard naval communications gear, and long habit through the war had taught naval lifers to try to stay on top of tactical situations. So despite the frenzy in preparing repair facilities, Wirtz's report was received simultaneously by practically every radio room in the fleet or on shore facilities at the same time Admiral Stewart's base command office received word. And if Stewart wasted no time sounding a general alarm and ordering all forces to immediate readiness to repel an attack, most of those forces were already springing into action by the time the orders flashed out and the sirens started up. Wirtz's reported position, bearing, and speed of the kelp man and associated creatures gave the base around 10 minutes to prepare. Acting on predetermined but untested plans, Pearl Harbor's squadron of defensive PT boats surged towards the harbor entrance. Most of them were already underway when the alarm sounded and a second wave of them followed shortly after as soon as they'd cleared their moorings. A secondary force consisting of four destroyers and the cruisers St. Paul and Houston had been left behind by Halsey as a last-ditch defensive force. The destroyers Hearman and Patterson were moored and slow to get started, although their crews went to general quarters and manned batteries as the engineering and deck divisions rushed them out to sea. The destroyers Shubrick and Livermore joined St. Paul and Houston to form a small line heading out to sea behind the PT boats. As base defenses, including the air wings, were scrambling, the defensive cordon of PT boats and the first wave of sea creatures converged at the harbor mouth. We've talked about them a little bit before. PT boats, uh, patrol torpedo boats, were small, fast, torpedo-equipped craft, each crewed by about 17 officers and men. Um, you know, the, the name, patrol torpedo boat, sums up their mission and capabilities precisely. These these, boat, these little boats were scouts and lookouts capable of inflicting bee-sting damage with their onboard torpedoes. Working in large concentrations in a defensive capacity, a swarm of PT boats had the potential to deliver a strong blow in the form of a virtual shoal of torpedoes. Chief Petty Officer J. Mann served on one of the boats swarming through Pearl Harbor, PT-217. After the conflict, Mann gave this account to the FCDP, quote, and this is a long one, quote, It was the goddamnedest thing, hauling ass out there towards the harbor mouth. You're in the most familiar setting in the world, the place you spend all your time, place you're used to being busy but peaceful. And now you're scared out of your mind. You have to remember this. Imagine that you're driving from your house to the same office you drive to every morning, but that shop's full of pissed-off squids that want to kill you. We were doing the best we could to form up into a proper line, but we were also going as fast as those boats would go, and we didn't have time to be fussy. And we didn't know how much it mattered. 
We had a doctrine for conducting PT boat attacks, of course, but that had been worked out for attacking enemy ships, not a bunch of goddamn squids and octopus and shit. We didn't really know how the hell our torpedoes were going to work there, except they probably weren't going to work very well based on what had happened so far. Doctrine was to form up in a line close to about a thousand yards and fire a spread of fish on the medium setting, which of course was aimed at the middle of a ship's keel. Well, when you're racing towards a big boiling mess of sea monsters, you don't have time to line up a nice textbook spread of torpedoes. And we didn't have any idea if that'd matter anyway. We're looking at hundreds of smaller creatures, mostly near the surface. Lieutenant Commander McCorkendale comes over the radio, says everybody close to 600 yards and just fire at will, shallow setting, just treat it like a shotgun blast, hope the fish hit something near the surface and detonate, and that these blasts take out some of the monsters. That's a lot of hoping. I don't think any of us had any confidence that this was going to do a damn thing, but we knew we had to give it a shot. I didn't think too much of closing to 600 yards, but I wasn't in a position to do anything but my job. So I just hung tight and stayed ready on the launch console. I wanted to get those fish in the water the second we crossed 600 yards, and I wanted to be able to yell that we were ready to start turning away by the time we got to 598. I guess I gotta try to paint a picture for you of what it was like. We're going as fast as those PT boats would go, upwards of 30 knots into rough seas, wind blasting in your face. Motors from a whole line of boats all opened all the way up, making for one hell of a racket on top of the wind. More and more planes circling overhead, some of the fighters making strafing runs on the water in front of us. And that water's churning like a son of a bitch, this stretch that we're steadily moving towards just boiling and frothing from all the beasties in there. You could usually see a couple of tentacles or even a sea serpent head sticking up, and they're closing on us about as fast as we were on them. It was just the goddamnedest thing. Weiss, the lookout, keeps calling out the range. 750, 725, 700. I'm checking all my lights to make sure the fish are ready to launch, and at the same time, the back of my brain's just going into this loop, repeating Hail Marys over and over and over. Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. Fish are ready to go. Then I'm looking ahead, and I can see that something's going on way back behind the churn. There's something coming out of the water, it looks like. I yell out to Weiss, ask him if he sees it. He tells me to shut the hell up, he's trying to do his job. But yeah, he sees it too. At first it looks like rocks or a little island or something, but it keeps coming out and keeps getting bigger and bigger and you can see it's kind of green and planty. And I can just feel my balls pull up into my belly. It's a goddamned kelp man. You wouldn't believe how big that fucking thing was unless you saw it. It was like a skyscraper walking into the shallow water in the harbor. That harbor ain't more than 30 feet deep. That's a lot of room for a kelp man to stand out. But we're still closing. Finally, Weiss calls out 600. I hit the fire switch before he's even finished saying it. Didn't even think to wait for Lieutenant Nelson to give an order. I figured he'd heard McCorkendale too, right? And he's got to be thinking the same thing, because before I can even finish yelling out that the fish are away, he's yelling to turn the boat around hard to port. We swing around pretty quick. Those PTs could turn on a dime. I'm trying to go through my procedures to get my console reset, in case we need to fire off a next round. The whole time, my heart's in my mouth, wondering what's going on. Did we hit anything? Weiss calls out that the fish are running straight. He can see the wakes. The monsters are still closing on us. 
Then we hear a hell of a boom. Weiss calls out, that wasn't one of ours. That was the spread from the boat next to us. They'd fired early. By now, we've turned 180 degrees. And if I look up, I can see the second line of PTs heading our way, and behind them, the cruisers and destroyers trying to form up. Then there's another bunch of booms, a little bigger. Sounds like hell's bells ringing. Weiss calls out that those were ours. They definitely made contact with something and detonated. These, uh, these torpedoes were designed to be triggered with magnetic exploders, and they, uh, with that setting, they were useless against a bunch of goddamn sea creatures. But, uh, you know, we knew this by now, so we were using contact exploders. But those contact exploders were fussy as hell, and you could never count on them. But this time, they worked, by God. Most of them, anyway. Four fish, three explosions, so loud they shook the boat from half a mile away. I can still remember feeling this little surge of hope. Maybe we did something. Maybe we could stop these sons of bitches. And then Weiss calls it out. Three detonations, one dud, still more creatures than he can count moving on us damn fast. I don't know. Those explosions must have done something to the monsters they hit. But there's a whole goddamned ocean full of them. God damn it. We're getting ready to pass through the second line that's headed the other way. McCorkendale comes on over the radio again, orders the whole first line to continue another 2,500 yards, reloading torpedo tubes while we go, and then turn around and form up into another line in front of the cruisers so we can make another pass ahead of them. He's just finished that order when I hear Weiss yell, Incoming! Brace! And hit the deck. Next thing I know, there's tentacles up over the gunwales on both sides of the boat, and I can feel us getting pulled down into the water. The lieutenant calls out an order to overload the engine, but the boat came apart just about right away. When you get down to it, those PT boats are just a couple of hunks of mahogany screwed together into a hull and waterproofed. The boat coming apart was the last thing I remember for a while. I guess my Mae West, which Keith here, that's 40s slang for a life preserver. Anyway, I guess my Mae West kept me on the surface and the grace of God kept me from getting eaten by one of those goddamn sea monsters or burned up or hit by another boat. I woke up two hours later, just offshore, when some heroic son of a bitch with a little fishing boat was trying to hook me with a gaff so he could fish me out. Of the 17 of us that was crewing that boat, only me and two other guys survived. And that's about how it shook out for all the PT boats in the harbor that day." End quote. As man said, the crews of the other PT boats in both the first and follow-up waves were nearly wiped out. This portion of the battle played out in a way consistent with previous interactions between non-primary sea creatures and smaller naval vessels. The creatures, krakens and octopi in particular, entangled the boats in their tentacles, attaching themselves in mass, and trapping the vehicles and then tearing them apart. Simultaneously, serpent-type creatures and lesser kelp hominids attacked sailors who'd jumped or been knocked overboard. As always, conflict with the lesser sea creatures was dominated by their numbers and ferocity, rather than the raw power that the primary creatures, like El Pulpo or Blackjack Kraken, or the Kelp Man, which was at the back of the influx of lesser creatures at this point. The attack by the phalanx of PT boats had failed. Most of the boats were destroyed by sea creatures after inflicting minimal damage, their crews largely picked off in the water by the surging monsters. Undeterred, the line of larger ships continued forward. The cruisers St. Paul and Houston steamed ahead, 
behind a line of four destroyers, the two laggards having caught up while the PT boats engaged. Still following the doctrine for ship-to-ship battles, the destroyers launched their spreads of torpedoes, which were as ineffectual as the PT boats had been. The cruisers opened up with their 8-inch batteries, but encountered the same problems Halsey's battleships had off New Caledonia. The gunnery crews were trained to fire salvos at ships at a distance, not sea creatures at nearly point-blank range. Shells fired at the kelpman, steadily rising out of the water as it moved into the shallower anchorage, almost uniformly missed or passed through the creature's mass without exploding, causing minimal harm. Quick aside here on that, a 1955 xenobiological survey of the, um, the kelp man's structure, and they were working with a lesser kelp man that was captured later, but um, you know they, the assumption was that it was the same throughout. Anyway, this xenobiological survey postulated that the creature was composed entirely of large, super-strong, quote-unquote, fibers, as if it was made of woven wires, and that as such... It was easy for ordnance to pass through the creature without detonating unless a shell happened to strike an individual fiber dead on. Um, you know, fun fact about the kelp man. Anyway, the cruisers had somewhat better luck firing at the surface churn of smaller creatures. Explosions on the surface might take out a creature or two, but even then the huge number of creatures swarming into the harbor made such actions moot. The entire encounter was rendered moot by the time the kelp man reached the flotilla. First, the swarming smaller creatures engulfed the line of destroyers. They were unable to stop the ships, but they slowed them down significantly. Then the kelp man, towering above the ships, reached over, grasped the top of the destroyer Heerman's superstructure, and hauled down, rolling the ship onto its side and capsizing it. Panic set in immediately within the rest of the flotilla. The remaining destroyers, moving with what little mobility they still possessed, attempted evasive action, but were essentially bogged down. The kelp man moved from ship to ship, dispatching them one by one, aided by a second lesser kelp man that emerged from the water. The cruisers were not yet becalmed by sea creatures, but their own evasive actions proved to be their undoing. After the capsizing of Heerman, the captains of both ships called for immediate evasive action. The ship's position in the harbor channel dictated that they sweep to starboard. Tragically, St. Paul's skipper ordered a wide turn, and Houston's, a sharp one, and in the confusion the two ships collided at flank speed. Explosions rocked the Houston, and she began settling into the water immediately. St. Paul, her bow crumpled and open to the sea, backed out and limped towards Ford Island, where her captain beached her. And, well, folks, I hate to end on a cliffhanger, or do I? But uh, that is about as far as I can take her this week. I, Like I said, I'm going to try to get part two together a little sooner than usual. So um, watch your podcast app for a quicker than usual update. And come back soon for part two of the Second Battle of Pearl Harbor. Thanks and be well. Them squids they didn't think about Just who they was attacking Wanker boys Get out there and bust them crackings I almost feel sorry for them serpents we've been tracking. Battle stations, boys, get out there and bust them crackings. Line up all them battleships and send the seafood packing. Train them guns out, boys, get out there and bust them crackings. Dee 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 dee.
sun.